2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll finish 2 Timothy today. Next week is Adoration on Sunday, and the following week we start the book of Hebrews. Ed? to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come home, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metalworker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he is strongly opposed to our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Some of you are scratching your head saying, I know that voice. And you do. There's a couple generations out there who listened on snowy mornings with gleeful ear to KYW, waiting for your school number to be called. Ed was the voice. Ed was the voice of KYW morning for 37 years. He just retired which we wish Ed the best of luck. But what really stinks is he's already the best golfer in Calvary Chapel, and now he's going to get even better. But uh, Ed's a good friend, and he puts up with me on the golf course, so uh, thanks, Ed. We're really proud of you. Uh, the text that you just heard would have been first read in Ephesus in a home church by Timothy. And then it would have made all the rounds to all the churches in Ephesus and then made its way down through Asia Minor. By the end of the first century, it would have been part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, most church fathers would have said this is inspired by God. And then for 2,000 years it's been read aloud and here we are reading it today. The significance of 2 Timothy is that this is Paul's final communication. These are his last words, his farewell address. We'll never hear from Paul again at 68 A.D. In two years, um, Jerusalem will be sacked. The temple will be no more. Nero has already burnt Rome and blamed the Christians. So persecution against Christianity is an all-time high all throughout the Roman Empire. And I think of Timothy. He's a pastor. He stands up. He reads this letter to his church. What's going through his mind? I can hear a quiver in his throat. Paul raised him in the faith. Paul was a legend. 
that Paul was this man who the Lord tapped on the shoulder on the road to Damascus, this man who was climbing the ladder of Judaism, who had a stellar resume, he was killing Christians. And he, God taps him on the shoulder and he said, you're going to witness for my name, for the name of Christ before kings and Gentiles and the people of Israel. And Paul turned the world upside down. There's fruit bearing all over the place. And Timothy's thinking, oh my gosh, Paul's writing this letter. The time of my departure is at hand. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. This great apostle's about to die. And Timothy's probably thinking, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to me? This is the man we look to. All the apostles are dying. Only John is left. Is there supposed to be a supreme leader? Who's going to fill the leadership void? And I think in some ways the entire church is encouraged as they see Paul's farewell address here. Now, to me, the most passionate, poetic farewell address uh, that I've ever heard is General Douglas MacArthur. To the cadets at West Point, May 12, 1962, he said, The shadows are lengthening for me. The twilight is here. My days of old have vanished, tones and tints. They have gone glimmering through the dreams of things that were. Their memory is one of wondrous beauty, watered by tears, and coaxed and caressed by the smiles of yesterday. I listened then, but with thirsty ear, for the bewitching melody of faint bugles blowing reveille, of far drums beating the long roll. In my dreams I hear again the crash of guns, the rattle of musketry, the strange, mournful mutter of the battlefield. But in the evening of my memory, I come back to West Point, always there, echoes and re-echoes, duty, honor, country. No ambiguity of where MacArthur's heart lied, his passion, his patriotism. And I think we see the same thing of the Apostle Paul, this man who lived an extraordinary life who was literally playing with house money. I mean, again, he's killing Christians, and God gives him a second chance, and he bears all of this fruit. And as I read this final verse over and over again, you know, I condense it to one, er to one word. Paul is at peace. He's at peace. He's at peace with his life and how things have rolled out. He's at peace with his impending death. He's at peace with his legacy. Paul looks back, and, and there's nothing this man would change. He understands it's all of God's grace. That God's put before him a journey. And every one of us, there is a journey that we are on. And Paul said, and, and look at verse 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the judge who knows all of us will give to me on that day and not only to me, but to all of us, to all that love is appearing. We're all on this journey. We all have a course. There's something we're all living out. Paul begins by saying, I have fought the good fight. Now, how many of you, when you became a Christian, everything was brand new? Oh my gosh, you know the truth. You want to shout it from the housetops. You're brand new in Christ. God delivered you. Uh, you're walking around and you get like this one week grace period, right? Where you think, I'll never sin again. Am I the only one that thought that? I'll never sin again, right? Oh, this, everything, grass is greener, the sky's bluer, life is wonderful. And then about a week later, these wicked thoughts come into your mind. 
And old habits are coming back. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to hide this from everybody. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe it didn't work. Maybe it didn't catch. And then you start reading verses like Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And you realize, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people he's trying to devour. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Beware of the wiles or the schemes of the devil, the fiery darts of the enemy, the lies that bombard us. It doesn't take long before you realize, oh my gosh, Christianity is not tiptoeing through the roses. It's not like what some brands of Christianity teach where if you accept Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nothing bad will ever happen. You start to realize, oh my gosh, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. You start to read about Paul stoned and shipwrecked, and you realize, you know, we're in a, we're in a fist fight. Paul looks back, again, he's on the back nine here, and he says, I fought the good fight. Translation, the beautiful fight. Paul said, this was a fight every day, and I fought it. Now, uh, the fight for so many of us is in the mind. That's where it really is. Because life is all about decisions. Christianity is all about decisions. What, you know, today, what are the decisions I'm going to make to live for Christ or to go my own way? And a lot of the battles in the mind. That's why the mind has to be renewed with the word of God. When Monica and I were young parents, we had to make a decision most parents make. How are we going to educate our kids? And so we prayed and we decided with our first, we would send them to Christian school. Now, that's not for everybody. In fact, with four kids, we did homeschooling, public school, and Christian school. So uh, I'm not telling you there's one right way. But when we decided to send our first child to Christian school, if you count all primary, secondary, and now college, I'm on my fourth, I have been paying some form of tuition for 24 consecutive years. Now, I have a lot of weird streaks going. My 19-year-old is going to be 20 in July. When she turns 20, I will have had 20 consecutive years of a teenager in my house. So I got some bad streaks going. <laughs> but how would you like to be 25 years old, 26 years old, trying to make ends meet, trying to keep your wife home? Now you're sending your kids to Christian school. You're looking at people driving nice cars, buying boats. I mean, there's a battle. It's a battle. It's like John MacArthur said, everything worthwhile is uphill. It's a fist fight all the way. And, and, and it's not like getting demonology books out, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't battle flesh and blood, but principality powers and demons and all, but, but we're not in the demonology, right? Ephesians says we stand, we have the, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. There's, there's a fight, but the Lord is in the battle with us. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. When the Bible speaks of fatherhood, men raising boys, it says like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So we are warriors. Christ's likeness and manhood are synonymous. Jesus was both lion and lamb. He had all the power in the world but his strength, his greatest strength was his power was measured out in weakness. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Paul said, I fought the fight. I left it all on the battlefield. He said, I finished my course. Now, here's where I think I can help someone. Here's where I think I can really help someone this morning. Paul didn't say, I finished the course. 
you know, we're not in a race to beat out other Christians. You know, we're not putting scalps on the wall. How many people did you get saved? What do you do for God? You know, we're not in a race against each other. Everybody in this room has a different course. Uh, one of the ways you can see this in picture form is when Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land. It took 40 years. When they finally got to the promised land, Joshua apportioned the land by the casting of lots, rolling the dice. And so the tribes were given different areas in Israel. Um, now, when they finally got to these areas, right, Asher was given the, the, the northern part of Israel, and Zebulon got the area of Galilee, and Judah and Benjamin got jurisdiction over Jerusalem. You know, the, the lot had fell just as Jacob prophesied in Genesis. So again, the first question I'm going to ask God is, God, where does our choice and your sovereignty meet? And we'll never know this side of heaven. But can you imagine if God let them pick their spot in the land? Can you imagine? I mean, God would have been a bad parent, right? Do you ever sit next to parents in a restaurant and they're asking Susie what she wants over and over again? And I'm sitting there and I feel like getting up and saying, Susie doesn't know what she wants at two years old. Just get her something. If we could pick our own spot, it would be like the airport, right? You know, gold members, silver members, everybody. You know, they should just say, look, everybody rush the gate because that's what we really want to do, right? <laughs> Why, I never know, because we're not going everywhere until everybody's in a seat, but that's a whole other story. Everybody probably would have wanted to be on the Mediterranean, and that was the worst place to be. That's where the Philistines were. The truth of the matter, of the matter is we've all been given a lot in life. Everybody's been given a field. Some of it's rocky. Some of it has water like the Sea of Galilee. Some of it has ocean. Some of it's stony ground. Some of it's lush. No one here chose where they were born, to whom they were born. You didn't even choose your own name. Everyone has a lot in life. Everyone has a course. Everyone's been gifted by God by different measure. You weren't supposed to be the Apostle Paul. You don't have his energy, his intellect, his passion. He was a chosen vessel of mine, God said. Uh, there are great verses. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. There's not many wise called, not many noble. Some, not many, but Paul was one of them. There are people with tremendous gifts, and when they're fueled by the grace of God, they do extraordinary things. That's their course. You have a different course. And if we're in our faithful in our course, then we will be handed the crown of righteousness. Now, I said I could help someone. Michael Horton, who I've read for 20 years, has a book out called Ordinary. Listen to how chapter one starts. Epic, radical, revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, explosive. He said these are the modifiers we use when we talk about church ministry. Everything has to be amazing or off the charts. He says ordinary has been reduced to the loneliest word in our vocabulary today in the church and in America. He said, when's the last time you were driving and you saw a bumper sticker that said, I have an ordinary student at Babbling Brook Elementary School. All our kids are geniuses. They're all going to make the MBA. They're all going to go to Juilliard. Uh, everybody's going to be amazing and epic. 
And the worst thing is to be ordinary. Horton went on to say, you know, we spend half of our life trying to live up to our Facebook profile now. I'm not on social media, but one day I was looking at Instagram on my son's phone, and I said, maybe I should go on Instagram. He said, Dad, don't. You'll lose your whole ministry. <laughs> he said, it's a bragging site. You know, people are going to be in Hawaii, and they're going to want, you know, if you take a picture, if you're in Hawaii, and I've never been there, but if you take a picture in Hawaii, they're going to think, why is he in Hawaii? I'm sitting here at a drill press, and he's in Hawaii. So I've been kept off social media for a reason. Life, 75% of it is ordinary. Somehow I learned this by osmosis when I was playing college basketball. And when you play college basketball, it's a grind. You, got, you have to study, you got to play, it's a nine-month commitment. And somewhere along the line, you think, what am I doing? Uh, you have high highs and low lows. The high highs are, man, I could make the NBA. The low lows are, why am I giving all my time to this? I could be studying, doing something else. And I remember one day walking back to my dorm saying, man, if I could just navigate the highs and the lows and begin to love the mundane, I can make it through this. And guys, that's life. You know, the book of Acts and what you see of these great men and women of God are highlight reels. It's ESPN highlight reels. You don't think Paul had ordinary days? He was a tent maker. Paul wasn't raising the dead every day. He was making tents a lot of days. And there's a lot of mundane. There's a lot of mundane in church work. Yeah, you get to go on mission trips. Yeah, you get to be a part of great things God's doing. And then you spend 20 hours alone in sermon preparation. The mundane, the ordinary. And we can't fear the ordinary because God uses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. He showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, loves us in ordinary times, uses us in ordinary ways when we meet others and tell them of his grace. People are made in God's image. How could it be ordinary? Every day we get to add value to people. Paul said, I fought the fight, finished my course, no regrets. I wouldn't change a thing. Paul knew he was playing with house money. I wouldn't change a thing. And I love this one. He said, I have kept the faith. That's very important. You know what that means? Paul said, I finished well. And finishing is, is a big part of this journey. Now, look what he says in some of these verses. Verse 10, Demas has forsaken me. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith caused me much harm. If you walk with God to the end, if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're not saved by works, but faith produces works, if you, if you walk to the end, you're going to see a lot fall by the wayside. You're going to see people bow out, fall away, compromise, do horrible things in the name of Christ, become half-hearted, etc., etc., etc. But you have to have blinders on. you got to know the one who has called you and, and, and walk despite all of that. Paul, before this letter, gathered the Ephesian elders together at Miletus to warn them that after his departure, after his death, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Bible predicted all of this. Paul said, I've kept the faith. That means a lot to me. I've been a pastor for 24 years. And there's pitfalls in church work. One of the pitfalls is to serve the denomination you're in, not Christ feel like I've avoided that. 
I feel like no one's ever bought me. I feel like I still have the passion for Jesus Christ that when I first started. I feel like I can differentiate this church and this work from my own relationship with God. At the end of the day, I still lean back on the grace that saved me and the grace that brought me this far. Paul said, I'm ready. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And he said, I fought the good fight. I've run this course. It's over. I know it's over. And I've kept the faith. And there's a crown of righteousness, not only for me, but for all of you that love is appearing. Are you at peace with your life? Some of you are just getting started. Some of you are on the back end. Some of you are in the middle. Do you know your course? Do you seek God earnestly for new horizons? God, what's the next part of the journey? The beautiful part of the journey is all the fruit comes at the end. You know, the beginning of the journey is casting seeds, casting seeds, you know, laying a foundation. Do you know where your course is? Do you know where you're going? Second thing is Paul was at peace about his impending death. Verse 6, the time of my departure is at hand. I love that word. Christians don't die. We just change realms. We just move on. You know, the time of my departure, some commentators say that's the folding of the tent. Great illustration. It's the same word that translates in the Greek of the word exodus. You know, think about Israel. They move from one place, Egypt, to the promised land. That's what you and I are going to do. Death for you and I is to move to another realm. Um, in the sermon, not the Sermon on the Mount, in the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus was there with three of his disciples, and appeared to him Moses and Elijah. And it said they were speaking to him of his departure, his exodus, of his death. Um, I said everyone has a lot in life. Jesus' mission, his lot, was about as clear as anyone who's ever lived. He said, the Son of Man hasn't come to seek and save. The Son of Man has come to seek and save which is lost, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, a, that's all Jesus' life was about, his three years of ministry. Jesus never was into social reform, world missions, human rights. All the things the church does today, Jesus never did any of those things. He called the church to do that. Go into all the world, change the world, make disciples. But Jesus had come to die. And when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he had accomplished the work. Listen, only he could do. He was very clear about his mission, and his mission was to die. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for all men to die once, then the judgment. Everybody in this room is going to die. Are you at peace with that? Or do you fear death? Now, God gave me a big gift in Africa because the first Sunday we were there, we went to Nairobi Chapel, and Pastor Oscar's message was death and dying. And I'm like, yes. He'll fill in this whole part of my message. Um, but we found out in the message, the reason he was talking about that is because it's taboo in Kenyan culture. Not biblically, but from the animism and spiritism that preceded them in tribal living. They really think if you talk about death to anyone, that is to bring death on that person. Doesn't make any sense to us, but that's their reality and worldview. So um, he was teaching them about death and dying. And the reason why it was on his heart 
is because he had a heart problem and he flew to India uh, to get his heart fixed. He had surgery. And as he had surgery, he sat down with his wife and he said, you know, we need to discuss a couple of things. And right there in that hospital room, he decided a few things. He said, number one, God doesn't owe me life. Life is in God's hand. God gives each of us breath. You know, as Americans, we spend all this time on how long are we going to live, how to extend life, heart healthy. I think it's all great. I think we should eat well. But at the end of the day, God holds your breath in his hands. Does that mean God's not a healer? Of course not. Healing's in the atonement. We're told to pray for people. The prayer of faith will raise up the sick. We always pray. But Oscar brought up a wonderful point that had me thinking for days. If no one ever died of cancer, no one ever got in a car accident, how's God ever going to take any of us home? We're closing every door to our departure. We're not all going to die in our sleep, okay? God has different portals of how he's going to take us home. Do we trust in his sovereignty? Over the years, I've had people come up to me, Pastor Bob, how in the world could God take my grandmother? Well, how old was she? 80. 80? When do you think she's going to go? Do you want to keep her here forever? I mean, we do have this destination. Death to a believer is a portal to the next life. Remember when Lazarus died, Martha ran out and said, if you were here, my brother would have never died. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a question everybody has to ask. Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And she says, yes, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into this world. That's all it is. The mouth, we utter, Romans. We make faith. We make We make this declaration. With the heart we believe, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you believe that, you will pass from death. In fact, we have passed from death into life. It's like going to an airport where you see the destination. Ours is just heaven. One day we're going. Paul was ready. He said, the time of my departure is hand. Paul was going to die. Now, Paul had faced death many times. Remember? Shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned, naked. I mean, Paul, many times. Jesus, remember they were going to stone him in Nazareth and he slipped through the crowd? It wasn't the time for his departure. But are you at peace with death? Are you ready? Now, when I was 25 years old, I wasn't ready. I was a brand new Christian. And it was on the heels of Hal Lindsey and all this teaching on the rapture and Jesus is coming and we would hear it every week. And everybody would say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And they were all in their 50s. And I'm 25 years old with a wife and one kid saying, Lord, no, don't come. Please don't come. I got to raise these kids. I I like my wife. We just got married. I like life. I like it here on earth. Never told anyone that. That was my secret prayer. And the reason I wasn't ready is because Because God has put vitality in us. I had a vision to start a church. Like, those are wonderful things. Paul was ready. And life can grind you to a place where you say, Lord, if I still have gas in the tank and there's something 
for me to do great. But Lord, I don't want to go to Arizona and float around in pools for 20 years. I'd rather go home. And, and you get tired. You know, you, you put the Christmas lights up, you take them down. You, spring comes, you get the fire. Like, how many years can you go through it, right? <laughs> Sooner or later, you realize, man, I was made for another world. This is getting old. The seasons come. The seasons go. Like, God, you know, I think of the water turning into wine. You saved the best for last. Billy Graham said he prepared all his life for death. He never prepared for old age. He never prepared to be 95 years old, can't get around on his own, can't do the things he wants. Remember Jesus said to Peter, Peter, this is the way you're going to die. This is the way you're going to give me glory. Peter looks and says, what about him? <laughs> what about John? Don't worry about John. Worry about you. Are you at peace? We're all going to die. It's the way of the earth. We get a little time here, a little vapor, a little chance to affect life, and then we move on and another generation comes. Pastor Oscar talked about some wealthy Kenyans who will literally, because they don't have the medical system we do, literally will spell, spend their entire life savings traveling the world, Europe and America, to try and beat cancer or something and leave nothing for their next generation. Is that what we're really called to do? Are we really called to live like there's not another destination? Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've run my course. I'm at peace with my life. I'm at peace with my death. And, and here's what amazes me. He's at peace with his legacy. And this is hard to imagine because he pastored the Corinthian church. They were a mess. He told the Ephesian elders, grievous wolves would come in, persecutions rising through the Roman Empire. I mean, if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this will never outlive my generation. Paul didn't believe that for a second. Paul knew what Jesus said about the harvest. He knew what Jesus said about seeds going in the ground. There's something funny about seeds. They can germinate thousands of years later. One of the remarkable things on our tour to Greece is to realize that was an entirely pagan nation that believed in the pantheon of the gods. And when you get there, their flag has a cross in it. It's remarkable. Same thing in Rome. You go to the Roman Forum and they believed in all these gods. And today you see Peter on one statue and Paul on the other. They replaced Marcus Aurelius where Circus Maximus is, the Vatican now is. And you think, oh my gosh, these seeds that were planted have borne tremendous fruits, even what Paul couldn't have imagined. Every generation of the church hears the siren call that this could be it. Europe is secularized. America's going the same way. We, we always hear the death knell of the church. And what we don't realize is God is always doing something somewhere. Picked up this book years ago called God is Back, How the Global Revival of Faith is Changing the World. It's not a Christian book. It's written by the authors of The Economist, if you ever read that magazine. It's more of a European perspective. Let me read you the introduction. It said, it would be hard to find a better cross-section of the new China 
Then the people gathered in the sitting room of this comfortable apartment of one of Shanghai's gated communities. The host for the day, Wang, is right down to the Blackberry on his belt, a prosperous, bespeckled management consultant who once worked for Intel. The guests sitting on sofas and chairs brought in from the kitchen or perched on the floor include a pair of biotechnologists, a Chinese-American doctor from L.A., a prominent academic, a manager of a state-owned business, two ballet dancers, and several successful entrepreneurs. A laptop adorns the coffee table, BMWs are parked in front of the building, and advertisements for jewelry dec decorate the elevator. These people may not be Shanghai super rich, but they are all, all well off and educated men and women on their way up in life. They're gathered in Wang's sitting room to worship God and interpret his ways to man. The proceedings are informal, as with most house churches. There's no pastor, just a group of Christians gathered together to discuss the Bible. The service is introduced by a chic young woman in a Che Guevara t-shirt. She apologizes for being late, asking with a giggle why there are always technical problems when it's her turn. Her husband is fiddling with a laptop. She says a spontaneous prayer, and the group sings a hymn. The accompanying music is downloaded from the internet and the words are beamed on the apartment wall from the laptop with the help of a projector that Wang normally uses for corporate presentations. True to this karaoke format, the hymns are jaunty in a slightly overall way. The lead singer on the downloaded track sounds like a Chinese Celine Dion. This young fashionista follows on with four unscripted prayers and then Wang takes over. He begins to open up to the book of Romans, and he talks about how eventually uh, the Bible passage leads him to a discussion of the revelation uh, as an attack on Darwinism, or evolutionary theory, argues Wang, breaking into English to recite the words, is the biggest lie because it pretends to be rigorous science. This is immediately confirmed by a biotechnologist who works on stem cells, Every day she looks at them, admiring their beauty and complexity. Stem cells must be divine. If you trust evolution, you distrust God, rejoins the surgeon. Evolution is another false idol, not unlike Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, or of the other religion the Chinese communists are trying to promote now that they have discovered, listen to this, they cannot kill God. Mao's great leap forward of a new China. He murdered missionaries. He killed pastors. He burned Bibles. And the rest of the book goes on to say there may now be 100 million Christians in China, thousands and hundreds of thousands of these house churches. Jesus said the gospel would go into all the world and it would produce fruit and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Paul, even by secular definition, if you look at what has been achieved, is the greatest leader of the last 2,000 years, bar none. The influence of Christianity, if you give him the credit for it, is the greatest force the world's ever seen. All this by a man who was hell-bent on destroying what he eventually built. 
It's all the grace of God. It's all God's grace. That's our fuel. That's what God's called us to do. There's something for this church to live out. There's something for each and every one of us to live out. God is alive. His eyes are going to and fro. And, and, if, and if he can work here, great. If he can, he'll go to China. He'll, he'll go to Africa. He'll go wherever hearts are open to say, God, would you breathe on us? Would you do in our day something we wouldn't believe if we saw it? Because the one thing we know is that God isn't slack. Jesus said, I come quickly, but for 2,000 years he's been waiting. Why? Because God's not slack in his promises, and he's not willing that anyone should perish. Anyone. That would all come to the knowledge that we've come to, of faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this man that we spend so much time with in the scriptures. We thank you for Paul's heart, his steadfastness, his wisdom. And yet, Lord, he was a man, man of extraordinary giftings, Lord, but a man just like us. God, he was weak and frail, asking for the parchments, asking for a cloak. And Lord, may we learn something of his life. May we be at peace in our life. Lord, living out what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that we would take inventory of our lives. Where are we going? Where are we headed? How are we living? And Lord, we look forward to that day when a crown of righteousness will be ours. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll sing this last song.